Recapturing the wonder of Adventism. Um, I've been a Seventh-day Adventist for 13 years. Uh, 13 years ago, I made the decision to enter into the waters of baptism. And uh, I can still say this day that it was the best decision of my life. Um, I love seventh, the Seventh-day Adventist message. I believe it's the message that the world needs more than anything else. But I also believe with all my heart that um, we need to recapture the wonder of Adventism. Uh, sometimes we get caught up in so many things of life, and sometimes we even get caught up in the motions of going to church and perhaps doing the right thing, but we lose sight of who it's all about. And so the, uh, my, my great desire in this series is that we come back to what Adventism really revolves around, and that is the person Jesus. And he invites us into an incredible story. And uh, in our first part, we looked at the invitation that God has given to each one of us to become part of his story. Remember what I mentioned, for those of you that were there, you'll remember that I mentioned that history is his story. And um, uh, when we think about the history of scripture, it is really an invitation for us as human beings to enter into his story to enter into history and become a part of what God is doing in the world. And yet what many times happens is that instead of entering into the story of God, we hijack God's story. And that was the title of our first message. And when we hijack God's story, what we're doing is we're saying to God, I would rather write my own story. I would rather have life revolving around me than revolving around you. And if we really want to have a meaningful life, a purposeful life, a life full of true happiness and joy, we must surrender our own plans and enter into God's story because God's story is so much bigger and grander uh, than anything that we could plan for ourselves in this life. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at how we can enter into God's story. If the scripture is all about an invitation to enter into God's great grand story for us, how do we do that? How does that happen? And I would like to invite you, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, and otherwise I hope you can follow along with someone sitting next to you, if they will be happy to share with you their Bibles. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. This is also where we started in our first message, and we want to do the same now, Genesis chapter 1. We want to begin in the beginning of the story. God created the heavens and the earth. We have an account of the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. And in six days, God created everything, and he called it, he looked at it, and he said it was very good. And we read about the creation of the first human beings, Adam and Eve. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, this is what it says about the creation of Adam and Eve. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
The first thing that we learn about mankind in Scripture is that they are made in the image of God. They are made to reflect the glory of God. That is the reason of our existence. We do not have any glory in and of ourselves. We are merely like a mirror, and we were created to reflect everything back to God, to worship God. And in worshiping God and in reflecting the glory of God, we find our greatest happiness. And I mentioned this also in our, in our first presentation that, that um, the problem today is really that we want glory for ourselves. And whenever we want glory for ourselves and we no longer reflect the glory of God, we have hijacked the story of God. And, and in doing so, we think we find pleasure, but we end up finding emptiness. That's all we find. And, 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 and that's why in this world today, people need more than anything else to understand what they're created for. They're created to give glory to God. Now, I want to drop down to the end of the chapter, and I want you to take notice of verse 31. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good, so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. According to scripture, mankind was created, Adam and Eve were created, not on the first day, not on the second day, not on the third, fourth, or fifth day, but in the creation account, they were created on the sixth day. And there is a lot of truth in that. Because they were not created in the beginning, but in the very end of the creation account. And so when they came on the scene, the story was already happening. They entered into God's story and they entered in on the sixth day. And the first thing that they were to do is when you continue to read into chapter two is they were to rest. They were to experience the Sabbath. Sometimes you might think, well, what, what must that rest have been about? Because they weren't really tired. They were just created. <laughs> and, and God doesn't get tired. He's, op- he's omnipotent. He's almighty. He's all-powerful. It wasn't that God was tired and needed a rest. Neither did man need a rest because they, were just, they just came on the scene. And the Sabbath that is introduced right after the sixth day, the seventh-day Sabbath, is actually an amazing, beautiful picture of the character of God. I want to read a couple of verses here from Genesis chapter 2. Mankind created on the sixth day, we enter into the seventh day, and listen to what it says. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. That's a very important word. They were finished. Everything was done. Verse 2. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So the seventh day was set aside. The word that is used is sanctified. And to sanctify something is to set it aside for special use. It was to be a time in which they would remember the creation. And that wasn't very hard in the first Sabbath that had just happened. And so looking back upon all that God had done and actually enjoying that they are now part of God's story. God created in six days. Man didn't create in six days. Man only came on the sixth day when everything was done. 
What man had to do is enter into the rest of God, enter into the story of God, and, and actually um, be part of what God was doing, what God had done. And, and this is amazing because when you think about the Sabbath, and the first thing that we learn about the Sabbath is that it was sanctified. Now, the first thing that God ever sanctified was time. And I want you to think about that for a moment because when you look at the various religions in our world today, you will find in the various religions and worldviews in our, in our world today that there is often a sanctified place or there is a sanctified object. Think about Islam, for example. They have a sanctified place. It is advised for the followers of Islam to, once in their lifetime, make a journey to Mecca, a pilgrimage to Mecca. There are other religions that have sanctified places. And then you have a lot of religions that have sanctified objects. A number of years ago, my wife and I, we were traveling to India And for a month long, we were traveling to different places in India and preaching and teaching the word of God. And I remember that we had to take a taxi in the city of uh, New Delhi. And uh, New Delhi is it's quite a wild city, and the driving is, uh, well, it's it's not like here, to say it that way. And uh, I remember sitting in the car, and and the taxi driver had this little object on his, uh, um, right in front of him there, in the car. And... um, it was actually an object that, that was sacred. And um, I found out that many taxi drivers, they have these sacred objects in their car because they believe it's there to protect them. Well, the protection is really something they need, by the way. Uh, but when I looked at that, I thought, well, I would rather put my faith in a living God, in the creator God, than a plastic object right there. And yet in many religions today, there is either a sacred place or a sacred object. But isn't isn't this just mind-boggling that the first thing that God sanctifies is not an object and it's not a place, but it is rather time. Now, what is so special about time and, and, and the fact that God sanctified time, what does that say about his character? Now think about it. If a place is sanctified, then in order to experience God or to to experience whatever the supreme being that the religion believes in, in order for that to be him to be experienced, I must go to that place. And if there is an object that is sacred, then in order to experience the God of that, uh, that, that the object resembles, I must have the object. Right? But think about this. When God sanctifies the Sabbath, he is sanctifying time. And time is not something you go to, and it's not something you have, but it's something that is coming to you. Time is always on the move. Think about it. If someone would lock me up in a room, and I couldn't go anywhere, and I could not get the sacred object, and I could not go to the sacred place, the seventh day is always coming to me. Amen? The Sabbath is always on the move. The moment, now we have the Sabbath right now, God has promised his presence in a very, very special way. But the moment that the sun sets tonight, we move into the first day, and the first day goes by, and the second day goes by, and the third day goes by, and the Sabbath is always coming. Time is always coming to us. 
And so when God sanctifies the Sabbath, he sanctifies time, and it is a revelation of his character, and his character is one that always takes the first initiative. He is never waiting for us to go to him or to obtain some special object. No, he is on the move. He is coming, and he wants an intimate relationship with every single one of us. That's the God we serve. And isn't that just a wonderful thought that God created us on the sixth day and and everything was ready, everything was in place and God creates us and we're just in his story? I mean, it's not up to us to write the story. God wrote the story. We are created and brought into the story and the first thing we do is resting in him, resting in his story. He comes to us. And I believe that at the very outset of God's story of Scripture, we find the invitation to become part of what God is doing. In our first part of this series, we talked about uh, Moses. And, uh, you know, uh, in the days of Jesus, uh, Jesus, whenever he, he would got it, get into problems with the religious leaders of his days, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they would often quote Moses. And they, they would say, we are disciples of Moses. We're not your disciples. We follow Moses. We don't follow you. And, and yet Moses was, was there to point to Jesus. We know that the writings of Moses were there to be a guide for when the Messiah would come that they would recognize him. And we looked at the experience of Moses and his very calling and it's so fascinating to note that when, when God called Moses from the, from the burning bush there in the wilderness, that God was inviting Moses into his story. It wasn't, it wasn't the story of Moses. He, Moses tried to deliver God's people 40 years before God appeared to him in the, in the burning bush. He killed the Egyptians because he killed the Egyptian because he thought that he was deliverer. It was his story. It was his initiative. And it went very bad. But after the 40 years, when God appears to him, now it's God's story. And God says, this is what I'm going to do, and this is what I'm going to do, and this is what I'm going to do. And Moses, do you want to be part of it? And Moses enters into God's story. And so often, we want to do things. We want to make things happen. We believe we're the final generation, and I believe we are. But let us be careful that it's not our story, it's God's story. And we are merely invited into something that God is going to do. He's going to do it for each one of us. I want you to turn in your Bibles from the book of Genesis to the book of Hebrews as we explore this theme together. How can we enter into the story of God? Turn from the book of Genesis to the book of Hebrews. Because entering into the story of God is really entering into the rest of God. And entering into God's rest is not some passivity of just sitting down and doing nothing. But entering into the rest of God is relying completely upon him. It is trusting that God can do what he has promised to do. It is entering into God's story and saying, yes, God, you that have promised this, you are also able to perform. And I want to take um, a look at a couple of verses in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3 and 4. Because here we have the account of ancient Israel, of the Hebrews. 
and how they failed to enter into God's story, how they failed to enter into God's rest. And these lessons are recorded down for you and for me so that we won't make the same failure. I believe that, that each of us, we want to see Jesus come in our, in our generation. Amen? How many of you say, I want to see Jesus come in this generation? Amen. We don't want another generation to pass by. You know, the, the, the Jews, when they came out of Egypt, they thought that they were going to be the ones that would enter into the promised land. But it was only Joshua and Caleb from all those multitudes of people that actually entered into the promised land. And what was the reason why the rest of them died in the wilderness? Well, we're going to find out here because we can easily repeat history and make the same mistake. And we need to pray earnestly and seek God how we can be the generation that will fulfill the promise and that we will enter into God's story and that we will actually be able to enter into God's promised land. Hebrews chapter 3 beginning in verse 16. And Paul is writing here, and he's looking back on the story of the Jews and the, time, and the period that they were in the wilderness. And listen to what it says. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? Now this is verse 19, is the key verse that comes now. Take notice, what was it that kept them back from entering into the promised land? It says, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. They could not enter into the promised land because of unbelief. You know, I think that the great problem of the Seventh-day Adventist movement as a whole and us as individuals, and I'm I'm talking about myself right now, my greatest problem is unbelief. Your greatest problem is unbelief. We don't believe that God can do what he actually promised. And this is what kept the Jews from entering into the promised land. They didn't believe that God was mighty enough and that he was powerful enough to allow them as a weak nation to conquer those great nations that were in the land. They looked at them as giants and they became fearful, and they no longer believed that God was able. And because of that, they all perished in the wilderness. And if we do not have the faith that God is able to perform what he has promised, then also we likewise will perish in this wilderness, this world. And we will just have to wait for another generation, perhaps our children, that will at last stand up and say, no, we can do it. Not because we are powerful, but because God is powerful. We will go forward and they will be the ones that will enter the promised land. But how sad would that be? That we would have to allow another generation to pass by. I'm thinking to myself what it would be like if I would grow up and become an old man. And at some point of time, you know, I would sit in a wheelchair and someone would just push me into a church. And I would look and there would be another young man standing in the front preaching and saying, we are the final generation. How would that feel like? 
What would I think like, like all the opportunities that were given to us, wasted, gone, no more to be found? I mean, this is the time. We are here for such an hour. The generation that God now is raising up to finish the work is a generation that must believe in the promises of God. My friends, our problem today is unbelief. We don't believe that God can actually do it. Our prayers are marked by unbelief. Our Bible studies are marked by unbelief. Our worship is marked by unbelief. The way we use our money is marked by unbelief. We think we know him, but we really don't actually know him. And yet in the midst of this, God is inviting us into his story. And we, like Joshua and Caleb, can say, okay, yes, the giants are great. We're not going to negate that the enemy is great and that, yes, the challenges are great. But at the same time, we, we trust in God because he is able to perform what he has promised. And by faith, we move into God's story. We become part of what God is doing. Remember that... that I, I believe I mentioned this in the first presentation. There are always two things you must remember when God wants to do something extraordinary in your life. You must remember these two things. Number one, who is doing the inviting? Number two, who is being invited? When God wants to do something extraordinary, who is doing the inviting? God. And if God is doing the inviting, then all things are possible. Amen? Amen. And who is being invited? Well, I am weak, frail. You are weak, frail, incapable. And yet, through the power of God, it's possible. You know, when, when, when God appeared to Moses in, in the fiery burning bush, God pronounced his name to Moses, and God said that this name is going to last throughout the generations. And it's a name that we don't use so often. But God said to Abram, you know, tell Pharaoh that my name is I am. I am. And, and, and when you think about that, you know, I am. God is able. If God is I am, then, then we are I am not. Right? If God is I am, then we are I am not. God is able. Right? And it's really the answer to all our questions we sometimes ask the question, who is on my side? And God responds, I am. Sometimes we ask ourselves the question, who is capable to give me deliverance? And God answers, I am. And sometimes we, have, we, we think, is this life everything there is? Is there a bigger story? And God answers, I am. It is the answer to all our questions. Always remember that God does the inviting and we are merely invited into something that God is already doing. When God came to Moses and he approached him there through the fiery burning bush, God didn't ask Moses if he thought it was a good idea to set the people free from Egypt. He didn't ask Moses if Moses thought that he would be able to do it. He merely declared that it was going to happen. He says, they will be delivered and you will enter into Canaan. And you will possess the land. God declares what's going to happen because it's his story. And he's all powerful and almighty and all capable. And the only thing that we have to be mindful of is, are we willing to enter into his story? He's going to make it happen. Every single thing that you read about in Bible prophecy, 
Every prediction of the last days and, and revelations, um, great, um, me- great revelation of, of what's going to happen, it's going to take place. It's not a question of whether it's going to take place. It's only a question when. And, and God, is, God is asking us into his story so that these things can take place in our lifetime. I want you to take, take notice of Hebrews chapter 4. How do we enter into his rest? How do we enter into his story? We must put away unbelief. We must obey the word of God. Take notice of Hebrews chapter 4 verse 9. It says, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also seized from his works as God did from his. It's interesting how this relates, of course, back to the very beginning of God's story. God created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh day. And there is a rest that you and I must enter into. And my friends, as Seventh-day Adventists, it's not just resting on one day of the week. It's talking about entering into God's story, resting in his story, not trying to produce our own story to give glory to ourselves, but entering into God's story so that we can be reflectors of his glory. This is entering into what God has prepared for us. I love how it says that we must seize from our own works. Because when we seize from our own works, we can allow God to work in us. See, there will be good works for the Christian. And yet those good works will not be his or her own works, but they will be the works of God. As we enter into his story, he is the one that sustains us and works through us. Now look at verse 11, the next verse. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. We must be diligent to enter into the rest of God. See, it's not a passivity. It's not sitting down and doing nothing. We must be diligent. What does it mean to enter into God's story? It means believing that God is able to do what he has promised. That is true faith, my friends. Looking at the word of God, reading the promises, and believing that this can happen in our generation, in our lifetime. That God is able to do everything that he has promised. This is the faith that we need in order to fully enter into his story. And I love as we come towards the end of Hebrews chapter 4, take notice what it says in verse 13. This is the most scary verse almost in the entire Bible. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13. Look at what it says. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. My friends, everything in your life, every secret is known by God. I mean, some things we are able to hold back from perhaps even our spouse or our parents or our closest friend. But God knows everything about us. Nothing is hidden from his sight. 
And yet, when you read that verse, as I said, it's, it's like the most scary verse in the Bible because God knows everything about us. But at the same time, it's the most beautiful verse in the Bible because if God knows everything about us, then why don't we just flee to him because he knows it? Why don't we just lay our sins at the feet of the cross? There's nothing to hide. And, and the next verse in Hebrews 4 is, is, is so beautiful because right after the revelation that God knows everything about us, he invites us into his presence. Look at what it says. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Is it hard to press close to someone that knows everything about you? Is it hard to come to someone that knows your secret sins? Uh, I mean, personally, yes, that is difficult. That is difficult if someone knows the very weaknesses, all your weaknesses, to come close to that person may be difficult. But you know that God, though he knows everything about us, at the same time encourages us and draws us to himself, and he says that we can come to him with confidence and boldness? With confidence and boldness, we can come to God's throne of grace in time of need, though he knows everything about us, every secret sin. And this is the mercy of God, my friends. That God, though he knows everything about us, yet he wants us more than we can even imagine. And he draws us to himself. He invites us into his presence. He invites us into his story. God knew the weaknesses of Moses. God knew that Moses had murdered the Egyptian. There was nothing secret about the life of Moses that God did not know about. Oh, Moses could hide the Egyptian under the earth. He buried him quickly, but God knew. And yet God, in his mercy, was drawing Moses to himself. And Moses fell before God and confessed his sin and entered into God's story. God is waiting for us to fall before him and confess our sins before him. There's nothing that he doesn't know, so we might as well confess everything and then enter into what he wants to do in our lives. Sometimes we just don't open the right door. You know, there's a door to God's greatness and God's beauty and, and an experience with God and a story with God, but sometimes we just lack to open the right door. And, uh, you know, I heard this story about a newlywed couple. And um, their friends had got together and uh, they decided that they wanted to do something special for them. And so on their honeymoon, their first honeymoon night, they got in and they all chipped in and they paid for them this beautiful hotel room. I mean, it was five star. It had everything. And so they got, they got married that day and they looked forward to this hotel, this, this honeymoon that all their friends had, had helped them to experience. They had paid for this experience. And so they went to the hotel room and they opened the door only to be terribly discouraged, disappointed. Like, come on, this is not what we had expected. 
This is not what we had anticipated. I mean, they had seen some pictures on the internet, and the room itself looked nothing like what they had seen. And yet they thought, okay, well, we just have to make the best out of it. And so they, they stayed the night there. And uh, there was like this little couch that wasn't even a proper bed in the room. It was, it was just like nothing what they had expected. And so the next morning, they make their way to, to check out of the hotel. And, and, and the lady um, that was helping them to check out, she asks the question, uh, how did you like your stay here? And they said, no, we we're terribly disappointed. This is nothing like we had expected. And so she says, okay, wait a, wait a moment. And she goes away and she comes back with the hotel manager. And the hotel manager says, oh, well, I, I heard there's a, there's a problem, sir. Uh, what's the problem? And they said, yeah, the, the, the room was terrible. And he says, oh, why, why don't we just go and, and take a look at the room then? And so together they make their way to the room and they open the door. And the moment the door is opened, the couple says, yeah, look. I mean, is this what we paid for? Is this what our friends paid for? This is our honeymoon. Look, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's not even big. It's, there's no proper bed. There's no proper, it's just not what we had expected. And he walks to the other side of the room, and there is a door that has the same color as the wallpaper, and he opens that door, and there is this incredibly beautiful room. They spent the night in the foyer. They didn't open up the right door. And so they spent the night in the foyer of an incredibly beautiful room. It's a true story. And, and how many times in our Christian experience do we spend our prayers in the foyer? Spend our Bible studies in the foyer? How many times do, does preaching happen in the foyer? How many times does our witnessing is merely a foyer experience? <laughs> Friends, God wants us to open the right door, amen? And when we open the right door, there is an experience with God that is beyond anything that you could ever dream. It is beyond the greatest thought. And this is God that wants you in his story. But we must, in order to experience him, open up the right door. I believe that the door to the experience with God is Adventism. I believe that the Seventh-day Adventist message is the door into the experience with God that is greater and more beautiful than anything that we could ever imagine. And yet, too many times, we merely stand before the door and we admire the door, but we don't open it. And in order to recapture the wonder of Adventism, we must see how every single doctrine that we have as a people is pointing to God. It is describing the character of God. It is centering in the person of Jesus. If merely the doctrines of Adventism are an end in and of themselves, we lack to see what they are actually leading to. You know, when I was baptized as a Seventh-day Adventist, and I went to a mission school, and after that I started working as a Bible worker and um, as an evangelist and, and preaching and teaching and, and traveling. I remember I came to a point where I was so amazed and so passionate about this door 
And let me explain what I mean by that. I thought it was so incredibly wonderful how the Bible teaches that when a person dies, they don't go straight to heaven, but they rest in the, in the grave waiting for Christ to come. That's one of our teachings, the state of the dead. I was so amazed with the teaching that the Sabbath is not Sunday, but it's actually Saturday, and, and, and that the world needs to know this. And I was so amazed with, with the beautiful teaching of, of Christ actually coming back. And, and we as Adventists, we know how he's going to come back. It's not some secret rapture, but it's actually that he's really going to come in the clouds. And, and how this all fit together, the sanctuary message and, 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 and all the law of God and, and the gospel. And, and all of this was so beautiful and so wonderful, and I was so captiv- captivated by it. But... I also realized that in my experience, something was missing. Because I was admiring the door. I was admiring the doctrine. And the doctrine is important. The doctrine is vital. The doctrine is the way into the experience of God. But my friends, we might fall into the, in, we might fall into the situation where we are admiring the door and talking about the door and pointing people to the door without opening it. Because if our, if our preaching is merely a theological discourse describing a theological point of view in Scripture, it will lack the power if it doesn't lead people into a relationship with God. Every doctrine that we have as Seventh-day Adventists is a wonderful way into a relationship with God. The state of the dead, the Sabbath, the sanctuary, the second coming, the spirit of prophecy, salvation, all the doctrines of of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the Seventh-day Adventist movement, they are intertwined with another, and they're like puzzle pieces. And when you put those puzzle pieces together, what do you see? You see a picture of Jesus. And people must see that picture. We can't take these individual points of doctrine and merely present them without showing people the picture of Jesus. We can't merely represent these doctrines without pushing that door open so that people can move into the story of God. And I believe for each one of us, we need to recapture the wonder of Adventism. We need to recapture what our faith really leads to. And it leads to an experience with God Almighty. I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And I want to illustrate how this works as we invite people into God's story, into an experience with Him. In John chapter 1, And verse 45, Philip, one of the disciples that was called by Jesus, he invites another individual by the name of Nathanael to also join Jesus and to become one of his disciples. And when Philip finds Nathanael in verse 45, this is what he says to him, John chapter 1 verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him capital H, Jesus, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, this was a revolutionary thing to say. I mean, for hundreds and hundreds of years, they had been looking forward to the Messiah. They had all the prophecies. They knew that he was coming. 
They knew that, 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 that he was going to set them free. And they were looking forward to this day. And then Philip comes to Nathaniel and says, you know what? <laughs> the one that we've looked for for hundreds and hundreds of years. The one that Moses and the prophets spoke of. We found him. He's here. He's here. I saw him. I saw him face to face. And, and you, Nathaniel, you can also follow him. And Nathan, but Nathaniel has an objection in verse 46. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, Nathaniel has studied the prophecies, but could Jesus come out of Nazareth? And Philip answers in an amazing way. He says, come and see. Come and experience. Come and experience for yourself if Jesus is truly the Messiah. And, you know, the story, when you read it in its, uh, completely, uh, you will find out that, that Nathaniel, he was actually sitting under a fig tree, and he was contemplating whether Jesus was the Messiah or not. And he was going over all the evidence. And he was, a, he was honest in his searching for Christ, if Christ was the Messiah, if Jesus was the, was the promised one. And yet when Philip comes to him, he responds to the invitation. And he gets up, and together with Philip, they make their way to Jesus. And as they make their way to Jesus, Jesus sees them coming. And in verse 47, he says to Nathanael, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Jesus recognized the honesty in the heart of Nathanael. And Nathanael, from that day forward, became a follower of Jesus. But what I find so wonderful about these few verses here, that it reveals to me that the obvious thing for Nathanael to do was to go to Jesus in order for all his questions to be answered. Sometimes we have objections to the faith. Sometimes we have questions as to why is this or why is that. But those questions can be answered in the context of a relationship with Jesus. You see, Philip could have sat down under the fig tree together with Nathaniel. They could have spent the whole day talking about the evidence that Jesus actually could come from Nazareth. But he didn't do that. Instead, he says, come and see. Come and experience for yourself. In other words, he was pushing the door open. Enter into God's story and all your objections will be answered. In our evangelism, what if we would do the same? Sometimes we're eager to sit down with people. Oh, I'll tell you why Jesus can come from Nazareth. But even if that objection was removed in the heart of Nathaniel, he would not be any bit closer to Jesus. What he had to do is get up in faith, in faith, and walk to Jesus. And, and we must come in faith. What was it that kept the Israelites out of the promised land? Unbelief. So in faith, come to Christ. And yes, your answers will, your, your questions will be answered in his time and in his way. And in the context of a beautiful, amazing relationship. And I pray that we will enter into his story and experience that relationship with him. There's nothing better. There's nothing better than knowing God, knowing his love, and having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. David, he summed it up this way in Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek. And he sought it with all his heart. One thing. And what was that one thing? It says that I, may, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. My friends, the motivating factor of your Christian life 
It must be more than duty. It must become delight. You must want him more than anything else. Do you know, a marriage does not thrive on discipline. If you wake up in the morning and you're married and you're just like, I have to love this lady. I have to love this man. I am bound for life. There's no way I can do anything else. I will love. There's a limit to discipline. But if you wake up in the morning and there's no one else you can think of and that that one that you united your life with, that's a beautiful marriage. And for us to enter into relationship with God, there must be more than the commitment out of a sense of discipline. There must be a commitment out of the sense of I love God. I love Jesus. And there's nothing that I would rather do with my life than seek for him with all my efforts and with all my talents and with all my resources, enter into his story. You know, I was in Canada um, a couple of years ago, and uh, I was there for some recordings for a program. And the director of this TV station, he took me out for lunch, and he took me out to a very nice restaurant where we had this vegetarian food. Just amazing vegetarian food. And so we put the food on our plates and we sat down. And, uh, and he also was really eager to tell me about some plans, some production plans that they had. And so he's talking and talking and we're eating and we're having a great time. And towards the end, uh, his plate is almost empty now. And he looks up and he, and he says this to me. He looks up and he, sa- he looks me in the eyes and says, you know what? I didn't even enjoy my meal. I've been so caught up in these plans that I'm telling you, I forgot to enjoy my meal. And I thought to myself, can it sometimes happen that we are so engaged that we miss the precious moment with Christ? You know, the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And God wants you to taste and see from his word. He wants you to commune with him. He wants you to enter into his rest, to enter into his story. So make sure that you don't miss out on this experience, amen? Make sure that you can get what God wants to give to you because that will empower you to live for him and to be his disciple. My invitation is very simple this morning, and that is that you may enter into his story, that you may enter into his rest. And I don't know what's hindering you from entering into that rest this morning. I do know actually what it is for all of us. It's unbelief. But how that particularly plays out in your specific life, I don't know. I don't know. Unbelief has many, many different forms and many different ways to manifest itself in all of our lives. But I pray that you will remove that unbelief and that you'll put your faith in Jesus. There might be some obstacles in the way, but remember that those obstacles are only answered in the context of a relationship. Push open the door. Enter in by faith. How many of you this morning want to say, yes, I see in my life that there's unbelief. And we all know that, but I want in faith to enter in to that story. Amen. Amen. Let's pray that this will be our experience. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you for speaking to us through your word. And thank you for the great and grand invitation to enter into your story. Lord, I don't know what is hindering us Individually, there are, there are things that, that manifest themselves in our lives. Things that really can be summed up as unbelief, disobedience to your word, not trusting your promises, not believing that you are able to do what you performed, that you, that you promised and will perform. 
But Lord, whatever it is, you know, you know about it. You, there's no secret for you. And so, Lord, help us to lay these things at the foot of the cross where forgiveness is found, where reconciliation is available. And may we press closer to you. Lord, I pray that we will be the generation that will see you coming in the skies. Lord, help us not to die in the wilderness of this world, but to look for a better world, a world where we will be able to behold you face to face. Thank you, Lord, for beginning this story and for inviting us in. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.